Hello, and welcome to Living It Radio. I'm Kelly DiNardo, here with Amy Pierce Hayden. We are the authors of Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat. Through our book and this podcast, we aim to make the principles of yoga alive, active, accessible, and personal. On this podcast, we go deeper into the topics we address in the book by talking to compelling people who can help us live an inspired, connected, joyful life. Before I introduce today's guest, we have a quick announcement. As we start planning for season two of the Living It podcast, we'd love to hear from you. We have a short survey at livingitpodcast.com where you can let us know what you'd like more of, how we can improve, and of course, enter to win a thank you prize of goodies. Now on to the episode. Today, we are joined by Sharon Salzberg, a pioneer in the field of meditation and a world-renowned teacher who played a crucial role in bringing meditation to the West and into mainstream culture. Sharon is the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barr, Massachusetts, and the author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Real Happiness. In this interview, we talked about Sharon's own journey, different types of meditation, what gets in the way of a regular practice, and how we know if it's working. So Sharon, for people who don't know you, I want to talk a little bit about your backstory. How did you get into meditation? (laughs) Um, I got into meditation uh, when I went to college, really. Um, Well, I sort of, I got into the the possibility of meditation when I went to college. Uh, I took an Asian philosophy course when I was a sophomore, and it just really turned my life around between um, the prospect of meditation, hearing that. There were techniques, there were methods out there that actually might make you a happier person uh, was riveting. And then um, even just the the simple acknowledgement that suffering is a part of life because I, like many people, had had a very difficult childhood. And like for many people, mine was a family system which never really spoke about anything. And so I didn't know what to do with all of those feelings inside. And so then I'd hear like the Buddha saying, well, this is natural. This is a part of life. And you're not so different, and things like that. So those two things together um, really made me so much want to learn how to meditate. And this was quite a long time ago. So I was going to school in Buffalo, New York. I looked around Buffalo, and I just didn't see it anywhere because it was a long time ago. And I finally, the university had an independent study program where they said if you create a project that we like, you can go to uh, anywhere for a year and then come back. So I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And they approved it, so off I went. I left in the <laughs> fall of 1970. Wow. Do you think there's a, mis- a misnomer that if you practice meditation, your suffering is going to go away? No, I mean, those words are so uh, difficult. You know, some people will say pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something that goes away, you know. Uh, <laughs> But to imagine a pain-free life, I think, is, is not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And because life is life, and we go up and we go down. And some things, it's one of my mottos, actually. Uh, if I ever do a t-shirt company, like, some things just hurt. <laughs> and it's not because you're resisting, and it's not because you have a bad attitude, and it's not, you know, because you have wrong thinking. They just hurt. And the question is more like the extra suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, when we add isolation 
to pain or a feeling of forever. It's never going to change, you know, to pain and things like that. So how long did you end up staying in India that time? Like most people, I, I ended up staying more than a year. I went back to Buffalo. I did what I needed to do um, to get two years of independent study credit, and I went back to India. So altogether, it was about three and a half years. So you have been very open and I think very brave about the suffering in your childhood, notably in your book, Faith. And yeah. I was hoping that you could elaborate a little bit on that for our listeners. Yeah, I mean, Faith was really the book that I wrote that was uh, became really about my faith journey, you know, and so... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was living in New York with my parents, and uh, they split up when I was four. They got a divorce, and my father just disappeared, and uh, I didn't hear from him. I didn't really see him again until I was 11, but in the meantime, I lived with my mother and her two siblings, and then uh, when I was nine, she died. So I went to live with my father's parents, whom I hardly knew, and uh, when I was 11, my, my, my grandfather, my father's father, died. So my father came back. So this is, you know, after not having seen him since I was four. And um, he, had, you know, clearly been ravaged in the meantime by alcoholism and mental illness and things like that. And he was home for about six weeks when he took an overdose of sleeping pills. And he did survive, but he spent the rest of his life, which was, you know, some considerable length, in some kind of mental health facility or not. So I went to college when I was 16 and uh, I calculated for faith for writing that book that by the time I went to college, I'd lived in five different family configurations, and each of which had changed because of somebody dying or, or some really you know, significant trauma. Loss after loss. Yes, I was ready to hear another truth. I really was. So you started with Buddhist meditation, but eventually were drawn to metta or loving kindness meditation. Can you... Right. Well, metta is a Buddhist meditation. It's, okay. Um, mostly what, you know, got popularized here uh, was mindfulness meditation, which is very much related, but it is its own method, <coughs> as a series of methods, as is loving kindness or metta. Um, uh, often, like in my, my first exposure to meditation in India, it would be a retreat of some kind and it would really be based on the development of mindfulness, uh, which is an ability to see your experience much more clearly. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a little bit related to what we were talking about earlier. Like if you have physical discomfort or you have a heartache or you have disappointment, a very common habit would be to quickly add on some kind of future, like what's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? And so not only to be dealing with the uh, actual difficulty, but to be dealing with everything we are making up about it, you know, and it's so much harder. So if we can relinquish the hold of all those add-ons, we can see much more clearly, oh, this is what it is, and this is what it is. And um, So that was really the basis of those early retreats. And usually at the end, we would do a little bit of metta or loving-kindness practice, almost a sort of ceremonial goodbye. So metta is designed differently than a mindfulness technique where... Um, rather than just resting your awareness on what is, uh, you're actually moving your awareness. You're taking some experiments. So, for example, you're in the habit of thinking of yourself pretty critically and focus quite exclusively on the mistakes you made just today and the things you did wrong. In loving-kindness practice, you're wishing yourself well. You're offering yourself 
sense of um, caring. And so you would not focus on just what is and feeling, you know, disheartened or whatever it is, but you would actually stretch, like, may I be happy? May I be peaceful? You'd make this kind of offering to yourself. Or if you're the kind of person, as we all are, actually, who might tend to walk into a store nearly every day and almost kind of look right through the person who's behind the counter, uh, just out of indifference. And the task in loving kindness would be like, okay, let's look at them rather than through them. And what happens? So you're intentionally changing the way you pay attention. So how were you introduced to loving kindness and what drew, mm -hmm. what drew it, you to that instead of a more basic mindfulness practice? Well, it was, it was presented at the end of even my very first retreat, which was in January of 1971, uh, as this kind of ceremonial way of saying goodbye, but I was intrigued by it. I thought, what's that, you know? Um, and uh, and it doesn't replace the other. It's, it's more a sense of working side by side, and, and I certainly came to emphasize loving kindness more than anything. Um, I, I always wanted to learn it more deeply and come to understand that I didn't have the opportunity actually to practice uh, in an immersive way under the guidance of a teacher until 1985 uh, when I went to Burma to do three months of loving kindness practice. And from that point on, for about four years, it was my only practice. I just did loving kindness. And then uh, I kept seeing my Burmese teacher, Sairu Pandita, in like Australia and all these other places. And he kept saying, well, I think it's time, you know, that you went back. And I said, I don't want to, you know, basically. <laughs> but uh, at some point he said, yeah, this, this is time. So I did. For our readers who don't know what loving kindness meditation is, how do you practice it? Uh, well, very often going back to mindfulness for a moment, you would start a mindfulness practice by trying to stabilize your attention somewhat and not be so scattered. And so that usually means choosing an object like the feeling of the breath and resting your attention there when you find you've gotten distracted or you've fallen asleep or your mind has wandered, we practice letting go gently and returning. So it's like the exercise of letting go and starting over. And what we do in loving kindness practice, rather than something like the feeling of the breath, is we rest our attention on the silent repetition of certain phrases. And the phrases are like carrying the heart's energy. Like, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, may you be happy. May you be peaceful. The way it's phrased, I know the may I, may you can be kind of confusing, and people say that. Like, people ask me all the time, well, who am I asking? Mm -hmm. And I say, well, you're not asking anybody. You're giving. It's like you hand someone a birthday card, and you say, may you have a great birthday. May you have a happy year. You know, it's got some juice to it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. For me, that reminds us of one of the things in the Yoga Sutras that Kelly and I talk quite a bit about, which is the idea of negativity subsiding when we place attention on the opposite. It's, mm -hmm. It comes mm -hmm. out of Sutra 33 in Book 2, mm. followed up by Sutra 34, which talks about uh, the main causes in, in the sutras of pain, which are greed, anger, and confusion, and thought, word, deed, or violence. And so when we find that we're, there's greed arising, or anger arising, or confusion arising, the previous sutra says, well, don't try to push the greed out. Think of the opposite. Cultivate, you know, um, abundance in your mind. We, you know, in our version, it would probably be, be may I, may I experience abundance, or may I? And so mm. it reminds me of that. That there's a, I like your word. That there's an add-on. Mm -hmm. mm. 
So how do you deal with negative emotions when they come up in loving kindness meditation. That's a perfect lead into that. Well, I'm pondering, you know, that very beautiful teaching um, that you just offered. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of subtlety to that, too. People often feel a little squeamish about it because they think, oh, it means being conflict avoidant and avoiding pain, as I always have, you know. And, you know, and, and it's a spiritual bypass. It's like reaching for the stars, you know, and uh, I can't even deal with what is, you know, and it's really none of that, but you have to make the experiment. To, I mean, it could be any of that, but you don't want it to be any of that, you know, and so it starts with not being so afraid of what you're feeling, however negative or painful it might be. And actually, it even starts before what I just said. It starts with replacing negative with painful. Mm. Um, because the point isn't that they're bad feelings or that you're a bad person to have them, but that they are they are suffering in themselves and they lead to more suffering and so that's a very conscious intentionality we need okay i've spent 50,000 hours thinking i'm horrible let me wish myself well for a minute and a half you know um and and it's not that you're afraid to be with the feeling because you practice that skill on some level it's actually accepting the feeling to a much greater that's depth. right yeah. that's exactly right and then and then saying, okay, what happens when I just move my attention here? So you're not moving from a, a true place to a phony place. You're moving from a true place to another true place, which gets much less airtime usually. You know, so it's got this feeling of adventure, not of force. I think people have a lot of emotion wrapped up around the word love, or maybe emotion's not the right word. <laughs> Definite filters to it. So, you know, we think of it as soft or sappy and mm -hmm. there's tons of platitudes about it tell us what you mean by love in this context well the the Pali word uh Pali is the language of the original buddhist text is metta m-e-t-t-a it's got two t's in it and it's usually translated as loving kindness mm -hmm. um which i think really captures it but i find it a little bit awkward a word because Whoever talks about loving kindness, you know, unless you're <laughs> in like a, you know, religious context or something. And, um, and yet it's a day-to-day, -day, you know, quite ordinary quality in many ways. And I've had scholars and translators come up to me and say, well, well stop being so cutesy. Just say love. You know you mean love. But, you know, but as you say, it's so complex a term. Like, what do we mean when we say love? Sometimes... You know, we really frankly mean a medium of exchange, like I will love you if you love me in return, or you know, if the following 15 conditions are met, or I will love myself if I never make a mistake. And you know, that's not what metta really means at all. And so um, these days I tend to use the word connection. Mm -hmm. It's a profound sense of connection because I don't think it even has to be emotional. You know, it could be in terms of our worldview, like who belongs and who do we pay attention to and who do we leave out? And it could be the sense of inclusion or um, that recognition that, you know, the self and other and us and them construct, which we use and sometimes is very, very useful to use, is really just a construct. You know, that an interconnected world as it is, you know, what happens over there doesn't nicely stay over there anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Uh, and that's just the truth of things. And so um, I think we limit it, the quality where we think it has to be like high emotion. 
Does that mean then to you that pain and suffering is uh, its source is being disconnected? I mean, I think that is true. Uh, or, you know, maybe a step in between, like, <coughs> there's the disconnection and then there's the um, rage, you know, for example. And then there's, um, you know, the opposite of loving kindness. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's something to think about. That's something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> it's rare for somebody to silence both Amy and I, and you did that. Wow. I love this idea that love is trainable. Mm -hmm. It's usually something we think of. It's either you have it or you don't. Mm -hmm. So, but that's essentially, I feel like, what we're saying through loving kindness meditation is that it is trainable. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and I think uh, it's interesting to me and uh, reassuring that you love the idea because a lot of people don't like it much. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a certain um, sense that, you know, love or compassion are, are a fixed amount and we have it or we don't. And I look at that a lot, you know, because it, it intrigues me. Sometimes I think, well, is it that we think that these qualities are like a gift and you, you have it if you're lucky or that it's a spontaneous emotional reaction but in eastern psychology is these qualities are absolutely trainable and that's the whole point you know yeah of something like meditation so how does one cultivate love through meditation partly through the training of attention it's like because remember i'm not defining love first of all i'm not defining it as liking somebody right. or <laughs> right. saying i approve of you and i want you to see you win you know maybe it's different than that but it's this profound sense of connection. And, and I think the connection is born out of paying attention differently. Like even if you imagine yourself meeting a stranger at a party, it's so rare that we were li listening, you know? <coughs> Maybe we're thinking about the email we need to write or who else we'd rather be talking to. And <laughs> it's only if we actually bring ourselves there and we, we practice kind of returning from the distraction just like we do in meditation that we have a chance of forming a connection or feeling a connection so that would be the first thing is actually arriving you know and kind of watching our distraction so it's a, it's arriving and returning and arriving yeah and returning, yeah and arriving, returning. Mm -hmm. you know and then there are things we see our own patterns of fear or withholding or whatever it might be and you know learning to loosen the grip of that and really being there and it's out of that presence and that more um, honed in attention that the love actually arises. Mm -hmm. I love this idea, the, the comparison to a cocktail party, because we've <laughs> all done it. I think I'm going to look at, at uh, parties now <laughs> differently and be right. like, this is a meditation practice off of, off of my mat, off of That's my, right. my seat. <laughs> so what do you think about loving kindness, meditation, and love in our current age, which is feeling particularly polarized and mm -hmm. not very connected. Well, I think it's the root of a lot of suffering, you know, um, both in people's actions, which I think produce a lot of suffering for others, um, and in uh, ways we either come together or don't to try to find resolutions to problems and the way we define the problem. Um, you know, it, it's not an easy time and it's 
uh, it's not an easy time all around. You know, many times I've been teaching loving kindness and somebody will say, well, why should I try to have loving kindness for this other person? They want to see me dead, you know, or, or they don't like my type of person and, you know, they don't consider me fully human. Or, and that's, that's correct is an assessment often, you know, or too often. And, and yet, you know, this sort of dehumanization and constant polarization and um, projection and objectification doesn't seem to be the answer. Mm. And so finding a, a different way of connecting may actually prove more fruitful. What is that different way? I think it's a mix, you know. I think it's it's a mixture of um, recognizing that uh, we all cause pain out of pain and that everybody actually wants to be happy. We all want the same feeling of belonging and having some place for us, you know, in this world. And that uh, at the same time, I think we always have to um, be on guard against confusing loving kindness with giving in or, you know, being gooey or um, I'm, you know, somebody who's like extremely passionate about voting, for example. You know, it's like these are the reins of power. We need to take them. Um, I don't want to see anyone hurt. I don't want to see anyone harmed. I certainly don't want to see any violence. And yet I don't want just anybody making legislation, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it matters so much less to me than to those people who say to me, you want me to offer loving kindness to someone who could well want me not to exist, you know. Um, it really matters. And so um, I think choosing action that isn't born of hatred and that is about uh, love and respect for yourself included um, is very important and not everyone agrees with me certainly not everyone in the yoga world or meditation world agrees with me and um, and yet <laughs> every time I write something because I do you know seasonally um, about it somebody will write and say comment somewhere and say I think so much less of you right now <laughs> than I used to <laughs> and I thought, oh yeah there it is you know uh, and then more like that but it means something to me, you know, that people, we work in all these different levels that we we try to recognize ourselves in one another and that we have that return to basic compassion and that we um, try to help create a world, actively help create a world where uh, there won't be so much suffering. So how does your practice inform how you do that? Well, I see, you know, what seems to me, within myself, you know, the uh, the futility of just, you know, fretting or complaining or um, being bitter or, uh, you know, being outraged perpetually. I mean, there's one thing to feel that jolt of energy, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening and let me see what I can do. Um, it's very different to have that from a constant chronic state mm. um, which just brings us down it can destroy us it's so damaging and and can also I mean the thing about being wrapped up and I don't mean just feeling anger because we feel what we feel and something's just hurt remember but um, when we're really identified with it and we're overwhelmed by it and it's so chronic and um, it really wears us down and it gives us a, a kind of distorted view it's like um here's a thought experiment we can do right now if you think about the last time you were really angry at yourself and bring it up bring it back just feel what it's like 
Oh, you get like a pit in your stomach. Yeah, and it's not a time where your mind thinks, you know what? I said that really stupid thing this morning, but I did five great things too, you know? Right. Those five great things are gone. So we get tunnel vision. We get lost. We don't see options. We don't see possibilities. It's probably not the best place to be creating a campaign out of, for example. Mm -hmm. Right. And then it becomes a holding pattern. That's right. Yeah. So is there a solution? Do we just need to train everybody in loving kindness meditation? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. (laughs) We can try. Now we're going to take a quick break from our chat with Sharon to tell you about this week's giveaway. Half Moon believes that props are for everyone, so they've created beautiful yoga and meditation products to support your practice. I'm partial to their meditation cushions, which help you meditate comfortably for longer by providing just enough height to allow your hips to relax. This week, Half Moon is giving away a meditation sip set to one lucky listener. To enter, rate and review this podcast, take a screenshot and share it. Tag us at Kelly Donardo, at Amy Pierce Hayden, and at Shop Half Moon. And all listeners can use the promo code LIVINGIT, all caps, for 20% off your first purchase at shophalfmoon.com. And now back to our conversation with Sharon. So Sharon, one of the things that really struck me when Amy and I were writing the book is that the Yoga Sutras, basically the last three limbs, talk about the different depths of meditation. Uh You know, sometimes your mind is going to drift to your to-do list and sometimes you're going to fall right into it. But I was also really struck by the fact that the goal is not just simply to silence the chatter of our monkey mind or to be a little bit happier or to sleep a little bit better, but the goal is actually enlightenment. So I'm hoping you can talk to us a little bit about what the goals of meditation are. Or the depths of meditation, maybe, is the better word. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it would probably be very similar. The, um, and again, you know, different styles of meditation are designed somewhat differently um, toward different ends. So, like, the goal of mindfulness is really insight or understanding. These days, as mindfulness gets much more popular, uh, it tends to be, if not taught, then received in a way as though its greatest purpose was for us to enjoy our lives, you know, to be more fully present when we're, say, washing dishes and to actually enjoy the sensation of our hands in water because usually we're distracted or anxious or we're somewhere else and we actually pay attention. It's much more fulfilling. Um, And so, and that is very true and that I think is a very useful point. But ultimately, certainly in a more classical sense, the goal is not just inhabiting your life but really understanding your life you know to have seen for yourself the truth of constant change and how holding on will only bring you down you know Mm -hmm. or to see that these qualities which like love or compassion which used to be pretty disdainful of they're, they're kind of great actually when you experience them fully and so we really understand things in a very very different way and some of that is personal some of that is universal like the mm-hmm. truth of change and, and so on. Um, and the wisdom leads to kind of unburdening the heart and letting go of a lot, which leads to what we would also call enlightenment. The design of loving kindness practice is more toward the experience of fearlessness and being able to consider others and act in the world in a way that 
is not based on uh, anger or fear or greed, but on caring, you know, on the sense of connection. It's inevitable. Like, it, it's not deliberative, you know. Like, um, my friend Bob Thurman tells the story, uses this illustration. He said, imagine you're on the subway in New York City one morning, and these Martians come and they zap the subway car so that those of you who are there are going to be together forever. And he said, what do you do? You know, if somebody's hungry, you feed them. If somebody's freaking out, you try to calm them down. Not because mm -hmm. you like them necessarily at all. Because you're together. But because you're together and you're going to be together forever. Wow. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> here we are. Here we are. You started to mention something about, I thought you were going to talk a little bit about identity. The fear mm -hmm. of change and identity, I, I think there, there's a big wrap-up in that, and or change in itself, mm -hmm. and that this process that we, we're, we are in this continual state of change. And uh, would you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the um, definitions I've heard of trauma is freezing. You know, it's like something gets frozen and is therefore repeated in kind of odd and distorted ways, but... Um, we definitely have that pattern, whether you call it trauma or not. And uh, we get sunk, you know. It's like I am the one who's always angry or I'm the one who's always put off or I don't count and I never will. And um, whenever we kind of finalize anything in terms of who we are, who someone else is, then I think we're bound to be disappointed one way or another. And, um, and it's also, it goes against the nature of things. It's not going to last that perception or we have to hold on to it tighter and tighter and it takes more and more effort and um but to understand that yes it's all shifting flowing moving existence that's what life is and uh we can experience that very directly just by paying attention and what arises is is more kind of um you know caring it, it's like if you meet somebody and they're completely obnoxious you know deeply, not just forcing yourself to say, but you really know in five years they may not be so obnoxious. You know, <laughs> like all kinds of things happen every day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so different than trying to put it off or pretend it's not hurtful or whatever. It's nothing like that. But it's really not make-believe. But um, that kind of certainty and sealing over the box and, you know, you will always be like a failed dog, you know, <laughs> whatever, you know. Um, uh, we don't have to go there. I've heard you say that insight meditation is disruptive. What did you mean by that? And, and People often think um, they're meditating for the sake of just calm, you know, and pleasant states. And it's not true. Those certainly happen. And they're wonderful. But we also experience um, all kinds of things like you know, I started practice when I was 18 uh, in India, and my first teacher for those um, intensive 10-day retreats was S.N. Goenka, and he taught and I attended several retreats just in a row, and at one point I sort of marched up to him and I looked him in the eye and I said, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating. <laughs> Therefore, laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was on him, you know. It was so clear to me it was all his fault. And he just laughed, you know. And, of course, I'd been hugely angry before I went, but I hadn't really been in touch with it. And mm -hmm. so that 
disrupted my sense of who I was and, you know, what I was feeling within. And um, it was very important, but it was very unpleasant. I think this is why often people avoid practices like meditation. What do you find are the common barriers to meditation? What do you, what do you hear the most? Um, there are many, you know. Uh, I mean, I think there's actually different categories because um, there are people like myself, you know, who would very much wanted to establish a regular practice and found that quite difficult. Mm-hmm. But they weren't fighting. You know, I wasn't fighting with the principles I was hearing or the values or um, or the importance of it. It's just as hard to put into practice. And uh, There are many, many people like that, and that astonishes me always because not astonishes me that it happens, but what's surprising is that nobody I know who's an instructor of any kind says you have to do this like seven hours a day for it to do anything for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's not some huge, 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 unthinkable commitment, but it's still hard. Um, it's hard because we judge ourselves. We think it's not going right, or we think, you know, we can't take care of ourselves at all. We have to always pay attention to the needs of others, or, you know, there's so many different reasons. But then there's another category of person which... You know, I may not encounter so much cause just because of what I do, which is teach mm-hmm. so often. And uh, But I was more thinking about them, which is a different conversation in a way. It's the people who really feel um, it violates some belief system of theirs. Hmm. You know, that it's uh, too tied to a, a dogma or a certain set of beliefs, which, mm-hmm. of course, we don't believe at all, and we don't think that way. And, uh, and yet, you know, there are a lot of people apparently who say, you know, this is harmful because you're um, you're taking on something foreign or something. They can, they don't think they can practice their own religious faith. You think within yeah. while also meditating. And yeah, we get a lot. We get that a lot with yoga. People are, I think, afraid that they have to be Buddhist or Hindu or give practice. something mm-hmm. up in order yeah. to do it. Right. Uh huh. The 30th, I'm curious, I'm going to read you this list here, and this is um, Sutra 30 in book one, and it's uh, an introduction to the things that are going to kind of keep us from practice and keep us in a state of, um, I'll call it the added on pain, and there Uh are nine things listed, and they are illness, procrastination, doubt, carelessness, laziness, longing, confusion, apathy, and instability. Does one stand out for you as a a strong one for meditation. That's a great list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll say procrastination because I am one such person. You know. Are you really? Yeah. Why do you procrastinate? Oh, I I don't think so much of why you know, um, but uh, I I think more about building structure to help me avoid that. So I'm the kind of person, for example, and I know that about myself where it's very useful for me to have a commitment to practice every day. Because I know if it's three times a week, it'll be Monday, and I'll think, I'll start Wednesday. Totally. And it'll be Wednesday, I'll think, I'll do it three times on Saturday. Right. You know, but every day is every day. And so I just know that mm-hmm. um, through looking at my mind so much. And I say, well, let's, let's shore that up in some way. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mine is carelessness, I think, in the sense that um, I like... I tend to think I can move through something more quickly 
and uh-huh. I'm being a little bit uh, careless in a deta- uh, I don't know if it's detached way, but I'm not being as careful, perhaps uh-huh. as I could be, because I'm, you know, I'm being, kind of, I'm doing enough. It could be more, but you know, it's sort of, I don't know. Does that make sense? It's like a, uh-huh. with there could be more intent. Mine is not on that list. What's yours, Kelly? Mine is definitely ego because I see the other labels in my life like writer or mom or yogi as taking precedent to sitting and listening to my true self. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, let, I let those labels be do- take over. dominant. Mm-hmm. Maybe right. doubt would fall into that one. I'm trying to see where I would place that. Like, Yeah. I, I don't carve out enough time for, for I, I give all the other time to the other labels. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so priority, sh- priority. Maybe priority. Mm-hmm. So Sharon, what advice would you have for people who are interested in starting a meditation practice but maybe having some trouble with it? Um, I would try to get some body of knowledge, a class or a an app or a recording or a book or something is available, a community. I just think it's useful because um, so many times I've seen people say, oh, I tried meditation once I failed at it. And they say, well, what makes you think you failed? And and they'd say, well, I couldn't keep my mind from thinking. I couldn't keep my mind totally blank or some idea of what should be happening. And first of all, we don't believe you can fail at it. And second of all, you know, we're not trying to stop thinking or... Mm-hmm. annihilate that process we're trying to develop a different relationship to our thoughts but not block them out and so there's just so many ideas we carry about what should happen and I think it's good to clear as many of those away as possible um, and then you know do it in a make the experiment in, in a reasonable fashion like I sometimes ask people well how long what kind of commitment do you think you can make and one person said to me 10 minutes a day for a month I said, great, that's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. You know, don't worry about 12 minutes. Like, right, right. Uh, and if it's two minutes, actually, that's better than nothing. It, it genuinely is. So, um, But if you feel you can probably do 10 minutes a day for a month, then you just do it. It could be a different time of day. It just depends on your life. People tell me all kinds of things. Like when a guy told me I drive to work and I sit out in the parking lot, mm-hmm. and then I go in the building. I love that. I, I do too. What a nice way to start your day. Of your many, many writings, is there one text that you would suggest for a beginner first? Yeah. Would, yeah. Which would yeah, be? I wrote, uh, that's Real Happiness. That's why I wrote mm-hmm. it and, and how I wrote it. Mm-hmm. I have that one on my shelf. <laughs> I, just, I, just, I just peeked over at my giant stack of meditation books. <laughs> Kelly and I have this, uh, We when we were working together, we have come to yoga like at two different sides where Kelly's like, she comes to, she'll come and practice. She was my student first, how we met. And you know, she'd often even skip Shavasana to sit in meditation because she'd look at me and say like, I just hate this. I hate sitting here. I hate, I'm going to just sit here. (laughs) And I think, oh God, I just want to sit here. I don't want to do anything else. (laughs) Let me just sit here. And so Kelly's got every app on her phone. She's got headbands that ding and be better to meditate. (laughs) I mean, anything to get myself on the mat (laughs) or the seat. So Sharon, 
how do you know if it's working, right? Like you said earlier that people think, oh, I failed at it. I'm no good mm-hmm. at it. If, if you're doing it 10 minutes a day for a month, how do you know it's working? The best way, although it's not an easy way, is to look at your life. You know, like don't worry about that 10 minutes a day because we all want that great breakthrough experience and it's rarely that way that we learn mm. or change. But you'll see a difference. Like how do you speak to yourself when you've made a mistake or... How are you meeting a stranger? Or what about this time of adversity? You'll see it in your life, your regular life. And, and in a way, that's kind of great because that's ultimately where we want it. I mean, wouldn't you say the same about yoga? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you have one of those moments? Did you have a pretty... Can you mark a moment in your life where there was a big paradigm shift because of your practice? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. But um, the story I often tell is about, you know, I had heard about loving kindness practice when I first started practicing. So that was 1971. And then, uh, but didn't have the chance to do intensive loving kindness until 85. But in the interim, I came back to the States. We uh, created the Insight Meditation Society. And for those of us who were there in the beginning in 1976, it was a time where we didn't have any programming for the first month. So we said, okay, well, let's just sit. We'll each do a retreat because you know, we have the place and mm-hmm. let's just do it. So that left me with theoretically a month in which to do loving kindness practice. And uh, even though I didn't have a teacher there, I knew how it was done. You start with yourself and you move through these different categories until you come to loving kindness for all beings everywhere. So I started out doing loving kindness for myself and, and only myself. And it was like, a, it took about a week and it was like a really dreary week. And um, I couldn't have honestly said anything was happening that was of any worth or note. Or, uh, and then at the end of the week, something happened to one of our friends in Boston. So several of us had to suddenly leave the retreat. So I was in one of the bathrooms getting ready to leave. When I dropped this really big jar of something, just like went down on the floor and shattered and the stuff went everywhere. And I can remember the very first thought that came up in my mind was, you are really a klutz, but I love you. Ha, yeah. And I thought, look at that, you know. You could have given me anything. I could not have obviously said something was happening, but something was happening. And I've seen that over and over and over again with all kinds of different people. The, di- the inner critic or dialogue has shifted, has made mm-hmm. a shift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Sharon, the the subtitle of our book, of Living the Sutras, is A Guide to Yoga Wisdom Beyond the Mat. And what we wanted to do was really make the practice tangible and accessible Uh so people could live it out in the world. What practice really helps you live this, live loving kindness out in the world? Um, It's going to sound a little redundant, but I'd probably say compassion. They have slightly different flavors, you know. Loving kindness is said to be based more on recognizing everybody wants to be happy, and compassion is based more on recognizing how vulnerable everybody is. Mm. Like, for all we look at somebody and think they have it all and they will forever, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because nothing is forever. And uh, out of that kind of yearning to ease suffering, I think we can come to a place of. A more universal caring. 
Wow. So on that, <laughs> thank you very much. This has been an absolute pleasure. We're, we are very grateful for your education. Very grateful. Thank you for listening to Living It. For those of you who want to find out about Sharon, where she's teaching, or her many books, visit SharonSalzberg.com. We'll be releasing a guided meditation with Sharon as a bonus episode later this week. You can find that, as well as links to everything we referenced at our website, livingitpodcast.com. And remember, Half Moon is giving away a meditation sit set. To enter, rate and review this podcast, take a screenshot, and share it. Tag us at Kelly DiNardo, at Amy Pierce Hayden, and at Shop Half Moon. Thanks for listening.